If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Sweet tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, but we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts Gummies Fruity Splits, a uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the things about McLean is he loathes spying. He said it's like being a lavatory attendant. It's a terrible job, but somebody's got to do it. Yet he was also the most productive spy Moscow Centre had. He gave away thousands and thousands of documents. That was Roland Phillips discussing the spy Donald McLean. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's interview is with the writer and editor Roland Phillips, whose latest book, A Spy Named Orphan, explores the intriguing life story of Donald Maclean, a member of the notorious Cambridge spy ring, who passed top-secret intelligence to the Soviet Union. Our website assistant, Rachel Dinning, caught up with Roland recently to find out more. I thought we could start by you telling us what prompted you to write a book about Donald Maclean. Donald Maclean's always been in the background of my life, I suppose, because my grandfather was his boss in the Foreign Office. Uh, my other grandfather, like McLean, was a lifelong communist, and so I've always been interested in why why people remained communist when 
we found out or we found out about communism. So those were the two factors. But the other reason is that his brother was also in the Foreign Office and had to leave when Donald defected and became a publisher, which I was for 30 years a publisher as well, and I knew Alan McLean, and my mother indeed was his secretary a long time ago. Um, so I've always had connections to the McLean family. But then a uh, writer friend of mine said that he'd heard a whisper that the MI5 files and the Foreign Office files were about to be released into the National Archives, and they should be pretty explosive because they hadn't been released earlier, and the reasons for that became apparent when I saw them because they're very, very embarrassing that they let him go effectively and, and didn't spot him as a spy. So when I heard that, I started reading around him and thought, what a fascinating man um, who hasn't been written about. And um, so that's when I got going, yeah. So Donald McLean was a member of the Cambridge Five. That's what people know him as. Um, so this was a ring of spies who passed information to the Soviet Union, predominantly during the Second World War. Um, so out of all the members of the Cambridge Five, well, you've already touched on why you picked McLean as a subject for your book, but what sets him apart from the others in that group, do you think? Several things. First of all, McLean was the most ideologically pure of the Cambridge Five, and indeed of the three that went to Moscow, he, Burgess and Philby, he was the one who continued his work in foreign policy and continued believing in communism until the end. He didn't drink himself to death. In fact, quite the opposite. He got sober when he got to Moscow. So that was one strand that really interested me of... of the the strength of his ideology because he lo the one of the things about McLean is he loathes spying he said it's like being a lavatory attendant it's a terrible job but somebody's got to do it yet he was also the most productive spy Moscow Centre had he gave away thousands and thousands of documents uh, I also believe he was the most um, dangerous of the spies in that he gave away such colossal secrets, including the shape of post-war Europe he gave when he was serving in the Washington Embassy from 1944 to 48. He gave away all the telegrams between Churchill and Roosevelt discussing the uh, forthcoming Yalta conference with Stalin, which would decide the shape of the post-war world, uh, amongst which was, for example, a comment that the they would push, the, the Western allies would push for the borders of Poland to be in a certain place. But if Molotov, the Russian foreign minister, wanted them uh, further west, they would cave in and agree to that. So the Russians knew our negotiating positions at the conference at the end of the war. Uh, McLean was had an access all areas passed to the Atomic Energy Commission in Washington. He was one of the two... Uh, British people who sat on the Combined Policy Committee. So he was giving away from that the atomic secrets, basically the, all the atomic political secrets, how many bombs the Americans could make and so on, which helped enable the Russians to detonate their own atomic bomb two years earlier than 
was expected. He was in on the NATO negotiations that set up the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, so he was giving those away to the Russians. So he was giving away, effectively, the whole post-war Western viewpoint of the world, which is pretty big, yeah. One of the things that I found particularly interesting when I was reading about him was his, well, his background, really. He, for all intents and purposes, was almost this embodiment of the quintessential English middle class. You know, his father was an MP and he went to private school and he went to Cambridge and got a first class degree. What do you think it was? Because it seems quite unexpected almost um, that drew him to align himself with the Soviet Union. I think it was totally unexpected and that's why they failed to spot he'd been a spy for so long because he did conform so much to to the establishment norms that you've just described. Um, I think it was a combination of factors. First of all, it was to do with his father, although Maclean did go to private school in Cambridge and, and all that. His father was more or less born in a croft. He was a crofter's son. His father, When his grandfather, Maclean's grandfather, was turned off his uh, land in Scotland, he came south as a shoemaker. So he didn't have that immaculate pedigree, let alone the private income that so many people had in the foreign office then uh, in those days. And uh, he does complain before the war that he's meant to entertain when he's posted in Paris on a private income, which he didn't have. Um, so there there was, although he his father did become an MP and indeed a cabinet minister, um, there was, wasn't that background of wealth and privilege that, that so many of his fellows had. His father was also a very strict Presbyterian. He was teetotaler. He was violently against smoking. Um, and he brought up his children. They went. They did family prayers every day. They went to Presbyterian church. He brought up his children to follow their conscience wherever that took them. And Donald McLean's conscience took him towards communism. So I think that was another factor. He went to a very interesting uh, school called Gresham's in Norfolk, which had a strange, or strange to us now, disciplinary system, sort of self-governing. The boys would turn themselves in if they committed an offence or could be turned in, which W.H. Auden, who was also at that school, said was a recipe for turning us into remote introverts. And so I think from that, he also had a charismatic teacher there who who taught him to debate and, again, follow his conscience. And I think he was a very, very successful schoolboy, captain of this and that, and got a, his scholarship to Cambridge. And I, but I think that somewhere inside this conscience and also the awareness that the, this school disciplinary code was foolish uh, would have that enabled him to keep his conscience sort of buried while conforming on the outside, which stood him in very, very good stead in the Foreign Office. The other thing is you, you have to remember the times there, the, he was the first generation after the generation that was killed in the First World War, very, um, uh, the League of Nations was a 
big thing at his school. They had their own League of Nations. They were taught that debate was the answer, not war. And Maclean throughout his life, and the rise of fascism in Europe, of course, when he was in his um, late teens and early 20s, uh, Hitler and Mussolini and the, the early, the build-up Spanish Civil War. And Maclean, above all, was a pacifist, and he saw communism as the only way to preserve world peace. So a combination of conscience that wanted peace, his um, schooling that that would lead him to follow that conscience, and the world situation, I think, all combined uh, to make him uh, the great ideologically communist person. And then I think he took a decision that his he could work for peace better by being an underground communist, i.e. going into the foreign office, than the sort of communist who, as Philby said when they first had their recruitment conversation, stood on the street corner selling the daily worker, um, that he could do much more good for the cause working within the establishment. So going back to the the start of all this, so he was recruited at university. Um, could you maybe tell us a bit about how he was recruited? It's something that seems, is so fascinating to me. He was, after his father died in at the end of his first year at Cambridge, Maclean became a sort of rabid communist. He wrote uh, communist poetry in his college magazine. He went on marches, which turned into riots in one case in 1933 um, and then immediately he left Cambridge he dropped all the um, the outward signs of communism because that was the point he'd been recruited and um, he he when he left Cambridge he was talking about wanting to go to Russia to teach English as a job because he yearned towards Russia. But a few months later, he was saying, I think I'm going to apply for the Foreign Office. So it was in that summer after he left that he was recruited. And how that happened is that he was friends with Kim Philby at Cambridge, who who's actually a year or two older, who'd already been recruited because he'd been he'd married a Viennese communist, Philby had, and, and been recruited. And so Philby first approached him, and Maclean said, yes, I would be interested in becoming a spy. And then he was um, talked to by a brilliant man called Arnold Deutsch, who recruited all of the Cambridge Five, who'd studied psychology in Vienna with Wilhelm Reich, a great um, uh, acolyte of Freud's. So he came at things from a psychological point of view, and he drew out four ideal qualities in a spy, which were uh, a, a predilection for secretiveness, a childlike need for praise and reassurance. Uh, and I think those were the two crucial ones for Maclean. Um, and because Maclean had had this very austere and now dead father, I don't think he'd ever had this sort of reassurance uh, in his life that he was doing the right thing, which he then got for the rest of his life from Russia. So that worked out for that. And indeed, uh, Deutsch was astonished at Maclean's productivity um, when he joined the Foreign Office because he was so keen to, to 
perform espionage. Um, I think the remarkable thing about Deutsch was that he also uh, realized that because of the political climate of the times, you could recruit ideologues and where better to look for them rather than blackmail or honey trap people into becoming spies. And he calculated that if he went to the top universities, in this case Cambridge, he would find the brightest people who would go to the top of the various professions that made up British life. And um, they could, even if they'd been communist at university, if they were then to drop it, everyone would just say, oh, that's the enthusiasm of youth. So I think Deutsch was a remarkable figure in that he, in recruiting the Cambridge Five, he got to the top of the Foreign Office, the BBC, the Royal Family, when Blunt was um, surveyor of the Queen's Pictures, MI6 through Philby. So he, he really did know who he was picking. I mean, one of the things that really struck me was when McLean did apply for the Foreign Office shortly after university, just how easy it seemed to be for him. I mean, I don't know what the process is today, but if you're applying, there would be such rigorous checks on your background and it didn't seem like that was the case Absolutely then. Absolutely not at all. Indeed, they, um, he put as his referees for the Foreign Office the grandson of um, <clears throat> Prime Minister Gladstone and, and another great liberal grandee in his interview on the interview panel was his uh, godmother um, who was the daughter of another prime minister and he was asked in his interview we note you are um, very left wing at university are you still and he was able to get away with I'm working on it um, and it is true to say that because he had the background he had uh, they just simply didn't ask those questions. There was no vetting in the Foreign Office until McLean defected. They took people entirely on trust because um, they probably knew their fathers or whatever it may be. One thing I thought that might be interesting to talk about is what do we mean when we refer to a spy? Because it, it sort of conjures mm. up this golden age of espionage or even like a James Bond type figure. Mm. But but what was the reality of being a spy for McLean? What sort of things was he doing? The reality of being a spy, well, it was immensely hard work for him um, because he was also working so hard at his day job, was simply handing over documents, photographing and handing over documents or in the early, before it got too dangerous to take them out of the office because there were no security checks in those days, he would come home each evening with his briefcase bulging with things he'd seen um, that day or had passed his desk that day and they'd be handed over to his Russian handler and photographed overnight and sent to Moscow. So it was put like that, it was quite bureaucratic. And um, later on in his career, when he was in the war in Washington, he only tiny snippets of what he's passed on we know about because the code breaking is so difficult. But we start to hear his recommendations when he's um, when he's saying to Russia, "This is what you ought to do in Greece," and so on. Um, 
that that he starts to interpret. He's seeing so much material that he starts to digest it and interpret it himself. But the reality of spying was simply on his way home each night, handing over a briefcase of documents to a handler who would bring the briefcase back next morning and he'd put them back in the files. So there was nothing um, James Bondy, no... Um, as mysteriously assassinating people or anything at all. It was, it was. I mean, he was a civil servant, and this was almost like a branch of his civil service work. Yeah, mm. certainly not a glamorous. No, um, not <laughs> at all. Line. Not at all. And I think that's why he, he sort of hated it, the the business of it, and found it very grubby because it wasn't. Um, it was sort of mundane and distasteful to him, yeah. Did he ever question himself or question what he was doing? I mean, I know you've said that he maintained his ideological beliefs, but mm. did he ever question this, what he was doing? I think he did late on in his career, um, certainly not until the end of the war and shortly thereafter, and after all, Russia was our <clears throat> ally at that point. But I think when the Cold War, when he saw what was happening in the Cold War and the arms race and knew about Stalin's purges of large portions of his population, I think he then did begin to question it. But he kept at it because, because of the ideological side. But I think it was in the questioning that his drinking became ramped up and that's how that expressed um, his uh, his questioning was in the division. He, he grew divided and drank to fill the divide, I think. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. So he, he passed thousands of classified documents between 1934 and 1951. What were the consequences, the very real consequences, for Britain and US, their state secrets being passed over? The consequences were that the Soviets knew what they were thinking, which uh, gave the Soviets immense confidence uh, themselves. And I... The, for example, the handing over the pay, the telegrams about the Yalta conference meant they could go into that conference knowing they also had the uh, 
Alger Hiss from the American State Department. So they knew both sides of exactly what was going to be said, which simply meant they could drive forward their own agenda um, and and come out on top and and control Europe. Uh, the consequence of the atom spying, I think, again, just gave them the confidence to um, get on and make their own bomb. I think some of the consequences of McLean spying led to his desired aim of, of world peace. Uh, there was a moment at the just after the end of the war when um, the Dardanelles, the straits between Europe and Asia, were um, being discussed. And McLean's leaking of the American plans for those, which were largely to militarise the, the straits, meant the Americans had to climb down and a flashpoint of the Cold War was avoided. Uh, I think the Berlin airlift of 1948, when the Soviets cut off Berlin, um, the western sectors of Berlin, and all material had to be flown in terrifyingly down a very narrow corridor um, to keep the population going. The Americans were posturing, saying, "We've got all these atom bombs. We can, we can drop if this if if Berlin continues to be cut off." And McLean, thanks to McLean, the Russians knew this wasn't the case, so it meant that the actual quite peaceable relief of Berlin could go ahead without escalating to war. So, in the Dardanelles and Berlin, he. I believe, was preserving the peace. Uh, elsewhere, he was simply giving the Russians the total confidence in their negotiations about the post-war world. Mm. What about after he was found out? What was the public's reaction to realising that this spy had been present in you know, these high-powered positions in the US and Britain? The public were absolutely horrified that... Um, for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, the there was real, by 1951, there was real uh, fears for the world peace with the atom bomb on both sides. So the fact that and Russia had become a clear enemy, the fact that one of our, their own could be working for Russia was, was horrifying. The real uh, schism that McLean's defection opened up was, I think, something we're still that's still reverberating today, which is mistrust of the establishment. And the establishment, the word establishment was first used in that context to describe the people that had protected McLean and Burgess. Um, the, the sort of ruling class, the old ruling class, as it were. Um, and this came at a time when empire was coming to an end. India had had got independence four years earlier. So there was a lot of questioning about Britain's place in the world. And then to find that these people they trusted had been betraying uh, our secrets was, was absolutely horrifying. It was front page news for months and months. Um, and I, why I think it reverberates on is that it does lead to I was thinking during the Brexit referendum when the so-called, when the experts were derided and and the Leave campaign felt that the Remain campaign was just the establishment looking after its interests, that 
reminded me, I, I think that the seeds of that sort of mistrust of the establishment were directly sown in 1951 when McLean and Burgess defected. One of the other things that I was curious about is how through all this time he maintained a family life because he did have a family. He was married and had two children. What were things like on the home front for him? Well, th this was when, when I was writing the book, this was one of the things that interested me a great deal was the role of uh, McLean's wife, Melinda, who he met in Paris. She was American. He met her in Paris in 1939. Um, and up until now, uh, it's been, it was assumed that Melinda didn't, necessarily know about her husband's espionage activities and that when he defected, leaving her, as you say, with two small children and another due to be born in a few weeks' time, um, the the country and the world said the poor wronged woman and, uh, and all of that. But what emerged from the papers, and, and in particular the telephone taps, was she absolutely knew about the defection um, and indeed helped by... by uh, so he went on a Friday. On the Sunday, she was pretending he was still at home, effectively, uh, giving him time to get out of England. Um, and that threw a whole new light on their relationship because... At his worst time of drunkenness, which also brought out a radical anti-Americanism in him, and she was, of course, American, um, he must have been hell to live with. But she stuck by him and um, and came back to him uh, after he this terrible scene in Cairo when he and a friend of his drank six bottles of gin in one day and trashed to someone's flat and he was sent home, none of which, by the way, appeared on his foreign office files. Um, he was just said to be having a nervous breakdown. But she stuck by him and, um, and, and did follow him to Moscow two years after he went, which was a moment of total astonishment. Um, and then weirdly betrayed him or, or Kim Philby betrayed him but she went off with Philby for a few years. And it's it's a very puzzling uh, and intense relationship, I I came to assume. I think they were, must have been politically aligned. She must have in some way admired his secret work. Um, but uh, he was not a good husband to her in in many ways, yet she stuck by him and I think she's a fascinating figure. Now, McLean evaded detection for a surprisingly long amount of time given how long he was a spy. So in your view, why did it take so long for him to be discovered? I think it was trust. Uh, once these people, uh, once he worked, and you have to remember he was extremely effective um, uh, diplomat. He was very. He was promoted very rapidly throughout his sixteen-year career. Would have been. Would have become. Would have got the big ambassadorships and probably become head of the foreign office. Um, and they admired his work. And it wasn't in their mindset that a man who worked as well as he did and as hard as he did could possibly be 
the traitor they were looking for. In fact, when they first were tipped off by the what became the National Security Agency, Security Agency in America, that they there was a spy in the Foreign Office in Washington in the war. Um, the head of the foreign, the head of security in the Foreign Office said it won't be a senior man. So they started looking, and they were all men in those days. So they started looking. First of all, they looked at the work at the non-British workers. Then they looked at the secretaries in the Foreign Office. They they simply couldn't comprehend that a man uh, of McLean's prowess could be uh, could be the spy. When they did realise, after a couple of years, because of the um, the importance of the papers they they'd spotted were going to Moscow, that it had to be a senior man, um, and McLean then came into the frame. Um, they still, when it came down to the the debate between being between two people, McLean and, and another man in the Foreign Office, they went for the other man because they still couldn't believe that Donald McLean could possibly betray the country because he was so good at what he did. And look, the party is very tall, very good looking, beautifully dressed, um, and was the son of a cabinet minister. So for all those reasons, it couldn't possibly be him. And it was only when they decoded four words uh, that mentioned his wife had been pregnant in 1944 that it absolutely had to be uh, McLean who who was the spy but even then they didn't bring him in for questioning they they debated for a long time they decided as he was about to have a, another baby they wouldn't bring him in till after long after the baby was born um, the evidence they had on him wasn't admissible in court was the other reason because it was so secret but I think a large part of it was they just couldn't bring themselves to, to do the deed. So do you think that they were negligent in that, in that sense? I have to say I think they were, yes, um, because I think McLean uh, would have confessed everything so the, the, the court business would have been, um, wouldn't have become an issue. And, um, and the Russians knew that too. That's why they decided they had to get him out. Did his defection affect international politics, particularly between Britain and the US? It led to massive period of distrust between Britain and the US, made worse by the fact that uh, it was an American operation, FBI operation, uh, National Security Agency operation that uncovered him, which was then passed to the FBI, who fed everything through to Britain. But even after... Britain was so embarrassed by the defection and by their failure to spot him that there was a 10-day period after the defection before anyone knew, before it hit the newspapers. Um, And we were so embarrassed that the head of MI6 was in Washington in that 10-day period and was lying to the FBI then saying we we've got six or seven people in the frame um, to be the spy, but um, nothing definite yet. When they knew McLean had gone, um, so and so the Americans, like the rest of the world, the State Department and the government, found out when they heard on the radio ten days after the defection that the 
there were two missing diplomats, at which point the Secretary of State said, my God, that man knew everything. Mm. And for our listeners who might not know, I just thought you could maybe tell us about his defection and how he got out of the country because it's it's quite yes, a dramatic absolutely. tale. <laughs> absolutely. So um, Kim Philby, who was a fellow spy, uh, was at this point head of MI6 in Washington where the operation that uncovered him happened. So Philby was kept in the picture. So he was a, he was able to say to the Soviets, what shall I do? And the Soviets said, you've got to get him out. Um, so in April of 1951, Guy Burgess was also serving in Washington and was being sent home for in disgrace for, on the face of it, speeding offences, but in fact for drunkenness and homosexuality and things like that. Um, so Philby was able to say to Burgess, you've got to tell McLean, as soon as you get to England, tell McLean, he's got to go. Um, so McLean was told he had to go. He assumed that all the airports and ports would be watched, um, but uh, it was discovered by the Moscow centre people in London, the handlers in London, that there was a boat that left Southampton every Friday night at midnight and cruised around the Channel putting in at San Malo for breakfast, which you didn't need passports on. So it was decided that that would be his route out. Um, and then the Friday the 25th of May 1951 was his 38th birthday and was his, going to be his last day in England. They were going that Friday night on this boat, the Falaise. Um, and he went to work as normal and kept asking his mother, this came out the files, kept asking his mother if she'd have lunch with him on his birthday. And his mother said <clears throat> she couldn't, but she would um, see him on the Sunday. So he had lunch with a great friend of his who'd supported him when he'd come back from Cairo in alcoholic crisis the year before. Was spotted in uh, Soho, where they went for lunch by his um, old friend Cyril Connolly, who thought how much happier and better he looked. On his way back from lunch, he cashed a cheque for £10 in his club. And then he went back to work and did a thorough afternoon's work. Uh, left his paperwork on his desk, made sure that everyone remembered he was having the following morning off. The Foreign Office worked on Saturday mornings then. Um, said his goodbyes to the for in the Foreign Office courtyard and went home on the train. When he got home, Melinda had prepared his birthday dinner and he'd said, I've got a friend coming to dinner. The friend, he said, was called Roger Stiles, which was what Melinda told MI5. I think she knew exactly who it was. Um, and the friend, in fact, was Guy Burgess, who'd called himself Roger Stiles after two Agatha Christie novels, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd and The Mysterious Affair at Stiles, so to give a sort of mystery edge to it. <clears throat> and they left the dinner table early, uh, saying they had to visit a sick friend in, in nearby, and uh, raced in a car Burgess had hired to Southampton docks, where they just made it on the fellas, they just left the car sort of on the quayside and uh, went to 
uh, sailed that night for France. The next morning, they left their cabin, went in Saint Malo, got a taxi to Rennes, where they caught the train to Paris. Uh, they went out from Paris. This is all pieced together, sort of years later. Uh, they got out of Paris and went to Zurich, where they had to stay for two days because they would then need a passport from then on. And um, uh, so they were being made in the Soviet embassy in Zurich, so they holed up in a hotel. And then the following day flew to Stockholm, uh, where they caught the plane to Prague. And so once they're in Prague... So that, that so it's Tuesday afternoon, having left England on Friday afternoon, evening, that they got to Prague and into Soviet territory. It's kind of remarkable hearing how his day on Friday was just so normal up until that point, just so calm and just at work, saying bye to his colleagues. And I think he was, <laughs> he was sort of at peace. Suddenly his divided life was no longer going to be divided. And I think that's why he was able to be so calm and, and, and yes, and just set off. And his, he left his desk diary behind, which is now in the National Archives, and you yeah. can see all the appointments he'd made for the weeks ahead <laughs> that he wouldn't be keeping. And, uh, yes. How tight was the net around him at this point? Very loose because they were worried. They hadn't told the ports to look out for them uh, and they hadn't told any of the foreign ports to look out for them for their arrival. They'd, um, as I say, the watchers never followed him home. So the last watchers reports ends at 610. Uh, McLean boarded the train at Victoria. Um, so they they really did let him go. And I think that's, again, partly because they, were, they would be embarrassed to say to all the foreign governments, as well as maybe they feared it would get into, the Soviets would get to hear of it if they started putting out a all alert for him all around the place. Yeah, yeah. Um, so to sum up for you, what's um, what's his relevance today? You've, you've touched on it already, but maybe you'd like to... I think his relevance today is mistrust of the establishment, as I say, um, and the fact that I think in all our dealings uh, with the Soviet Union and, and other foreign powers, everyone is aware that at some level there could be spies in there. And um, that is a pretty uh, sobering thought and I think never more important than than now when we're facing new crises with Russia um, and Russian penetration of Britain. Um, so his relevance is, is part of the decline of Britain, the end of empire, the end of that gentlemanly Oxbridge Trust um, that used to rule the country. Um, and uh, so he stands as a massive symbol as well as a man who made a practical difference to the way we do things. That was Roland Phillips. A Spy Named Orphan, The Enigma of Donald MacLean, is out now in the UK, published by Bodley Head. And in the US, it's also available, published by WW Norton. And that's about all for today's episode, but please do listen in next Thursday for more from the world of history. 
Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 